2 a.m. Welcome back to the 2 a.m. Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, I want to talk about strong women. Strong women are a trope, an archetype in fiction that have gotten a lot of, let's call it feedback, over the past few years. Personally, I first became aware of this conversation. I feel like I'm being generous in calling it conversation, but let's call it conversation during the release of the movie Captain Marvel, which I believe happened back in 2018. But obviously, I know that this discussion has been going on for a lot longer than that. And let's be honest for a minute here, a lot of those discussions are made in bad faith. For example, if you saw any of the discussion regarding Captain Marvel that I referenced just now, then you know that a lot of those people were just being absolutely vitriolic against both the movie and for some reason the actress portraying Captain Marvel, which I personally still don't understand. Now, was the situation around the Captain Marvel movie worse than the harassment that happened during the Star Wars sequel trilogy? It's up for debate, but honestly, both situations were really unfortunate and went far, far beyond simply criticism of the movies themselves. Now, I'm not saying that criticisms of these movies weren't justified. I'm sure there were plenty of fair criticisms that you could have made. Personally, I don't have any stakes in the matter since I haven't seen either the Star Wars sequel trilogy or or any Marvel movies at all. But I'm just trying to say here that a lot of the criticism I saw regarding these movies when they first came out was absolutely made in bad faith. And uh, I got the feeling reading through those um, discussions that a lot of the criticism that strong female characters who are branded as strong female characters receive comes from people who would rather not see women as protagonists in any kind of movie except maybe rom-coms. So all of this to say that I am not here to endorse or support those kinds of arguments against strong female characters, period, full stop, no exceptions. As a woman who loves traditionally male-oriented media like sci-fi and fantasy, I'm really happy to see women finally being elevated to the status of main characters. And as I've made clear on here before, I am a woman and I write books centered around women and women's experiences. However, in my discussion of strong female characters today, what I hope to do is to explore the way in which female characters are developed and presented as strong characters in literature. Going back a moment to strong women in film and television, those women are often defined by their struggles and their suffering. It's how they become stronger. And disturbingly, a lot of these struggles often involve 
violence and violent assaults committed against them. I'm sure that there are a lot of examples that you're probably thinking of right now, but in particular, I'm thinking of Sansa in Game of Thrones season eight, where she says something along the lines of being grateful for her suffering because it's what made her stronger. I don't know the exact line since I didn't watch season eight. Back when season eight was announced, I had actually never seen Game of Thrones. So I took it as an opportunity to binge all seven seasons because everyone was really excited for season eight. And I wanted to be a part of what I thought was going to be a cultural phenomenon, if that makes sense. But I got to the end of season seven right before season eight came out. And at that point, I honestly wasn't really sure why I was even watching anymore because I guess it got boring. Even as early as season five, there were points where I found myself wondering what I was doing because I just wasn't interested in the story. And so when season eight came out, I decided to wait. And then the memes started appearing online and I felt so vindicated in deciding not to watch it. So to this day, I have still not seen season eight. As far as I'm concerned, that show ended with the ice zombies invading Westeros and killing everyone off. And that's a better ending than the show got anyway. Moving on, let's just say that I have a lot of problems with this idea that trauma and suffering can make anybody stronger. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I've had a terrible life because I haven't. My life in a lot of ways has been pretty great, very fortunate, very privileged, but I have certainly been through experiences that were traumatic for me. And the result of those experiences was not that I became some kind of superhero or even a stronger person. Those experiences deeply affected my mental health and those mental health struggles continue for me even today. Even when my life appears to be going great and I should be really happy, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I can't be. And when my life is not going so great, my mental health problems just make everything worse. And knowing that there are people out there who have endured things I can't even begin to comprehend, it really drives home for me my deep-seated belief that trauma cannot make you stronger. It handicaps you in day-to-day -day life. It makes you even more depressed when your life is going great and you feel like you should be happy, you need to be happy, but you just aren't. And it can make even the most innocuous mundane mundane things bring back terrible memories, but it absolutely does not make you stronger. I am strong in spite of the things that I have gone through. And in my opinion, I think I would be a much stronger person today if I had never had to endure them. Now, let's bring the conversation back to strong women in literature. Most of the conversations I've seen regarding strong female characters have centered around film and television. But let's be honest, books are more of my thing, especially when I'm hosting a books podcast. So let's talk about strong women in books. Do they suffer as much as their visual media counterparts? Do they endure the same kind of suffering? Can strong women in literature be strong without suffering? Let's find out. 
So the first book on my list today is The Lies I Tell by Julie Clark. This is a recent release from 2022, and it was a book that I was super excited to read. It centers around a female con artist, which, as pointed out in the book, is not particularly common in true crime. If you think of con artists, you probably think of Ponzi schemes or other big financial schemes that are usually run by men. Although if you've been paying any attention to the news at all, you probably know that Elizabeth Holmes got sentenced to jail recently back in 2022, and she definitely counts as a female con artist. Theranos is one of the more audacious schemes I've ever read about, and it's absolutely incredible how many people she was able to fool off of appearances alone. Don't judge a book by its cover is a saying that could have been invented specifically for her. I've been following the Theranos story for years at this point, and I will never get over the fact that so many people invested in her company when she never had an actual working product. Another female con artist case I came across recently was the story of Anna Sorokin, which you may have heard of if you've seen the Netflix show Inventing Anna. Anna Sorokin was a con artist who managed to trick a lot of wealthy people into giving her money by pretending to also be super rich, which is honestly pretty smart. Apparently, rich people love giving other rich people money. Anyway, Anna Sorokin ended up going to jail and as far as I know, as far as her Wikipedia page goes, she's still under house arrest. If you've never heard of her, you should absolutely take a look at her Wikipedia article, which I'll be linking in the description. It's quite the saga. It's an epic all of its own. She managed to fool people for four years and she ended up stealing tens of thousands of dollars, which she mostly spent trying to keep up the appearance of a lavish lifestyle, including at one point spending $400 on eyelash extensions, which I mean, it was her stolen money and I don't know how much eyelash extensions are supposed to cost because I don't know anything about like beauty and makeup but girl that's a lot of money to be spending on eyelash extensions when you don't even know if you're going to have a place to sleep tomorrow night. The most incredible part of her story to me was how she just kept spending all of the money she stole. Not that I would know, but I guess living the lifestyle of the rich and famous becomes addicting. Like, after you've been dining at five-star restaurants, I guess you don't want to go back to clipping coupons. And going off of the descriptions of her personality in the article, it seems to me like her biggest problem was really just what took down basically every Greek mythology hero, hubris. I think that she was just so good at stealing money from people that she felt like she could just get away with it indefinitely. But the entire time I was reading the article, I kept thinking, okay, now you've got your hands on a lump sum of money. Why don't you just run with it? At one point, for example, she got her hands on 70000 
$3,000, which is a lot of money to get without actually doing any kind of work. There are plenty of people who make that in an entire year. But you know, reading through her Wikipedia article, she doesn't seem like a particularly nice person. So I'm glad she was caught and everything, but still missed opportunities here. So all of that is to say that female con artists have been on the public's radar recently, which I think makes this book, The Lies I Tell, pretty timely. And it's definitely one of the reasons that I was so interested in reading it. The Lies I Tell is centered around two female protagonists, Meg and Kat, who I would say are both strong women. If you want a really good way to summarize Meg's character, and also if you want an easy way to describe this book, I would highly recommend listening to Taylor Swift's song, Vigilante Shit. It's one of the songs on her newest album, Midnight's. And if you love that song, you'll definitely love this book. Even if you don't love the song, you'll probably still like the book. But I'm just saying the subject matter of the song and the vibe just struck me as really similar to this book. It's not personally my favorite song melody-wise. I feel like melodically it could have been more interesting. And I don't really like that there's not really a point where the song builds up. I, I don't know the technical term, but I think you know what I mean. But I do love the lyrics because they give me huge reputation vibes, Plastic Hearts vibes, and I love both of those albums. I listen to them whenever I want to psych myself up and feel confident. Also, in case you're curious, which you're probably not, but you're listening to an entire podcast about my opinions. So I'm going to give you my unsolicited opinion on Midnight's The Album, which is that I absolutely love the song Paris off of the 3am edition and I think it's underrated as far as any Taylor Swift song can be underrated. Okay, sorry about the Taylor Swift tangent. Uh, This podcast is absolutely not in danger of becoming a Taylor Swift podcast because there are definitely enough of those out there and also it would become a very boring podcast probably because I would just be like, oh, I love this song and that song and this song, you know, not very interesting content. I I am aware I'm making it sound like there aren't enough book podcasts out there, but here we are. Back to the lies I tell. Back to our regularly scheduled content. The premise of this book is that Meg is a con artist and Kat is a journalist who has been hurt by Meg in the past and wants revenge. Now, as I said before, I would definitely classify both of these women as strong women. They're independent, they're very much in control of their lives, and they've both made the most of their lives despite what they've been through. Did you catch what I just said? They've both made the most of their lives despite what they've been through? That's the question we're discussing today. Do strong women need to suffer? Is the suffering implied to be what makes them strong? What do the strong women in literature go through? And it's at this point in the podcast that I realize I have not yet given my spoiler alert warning. Every episode, I give my obligatory warning, and I am very excited 
excited to know how I will feel about giving said warning every episode by, you know, episode 100 or whatever. But spoiler culture on the internet is serious business. This is basically the equivalent of a legal disclaimer. Uh, I am sounding a little sarcastic here, but I do respect that it's much more fun to read a book if you're going in completely blind, particularly a domestic thriller like we're talking about right now. So listening beyond this point means that you will be spoiled for the books that we are talking about today, The Lies I Tell, The Four Winds, and Little Fires Everywhere. So this is your warning. You have been warned. Okay, back to The Lies I Tell and its characters. Meg is clearly a character who rises out of her suffering like a phoenix from the ashes too dramatic? Probably. At the beginning of her career, Meg is broke and she's living out of her car. Not a fun situation for anyone to be in. Her first scam is what gets her out of poverty and onto the road of a career criminal. I don't think it's fair to say that her suffering is depicted as what makes her strong because she's incredibly creative at dealing with her hardships even before she starts scamming people. That kind of confidence and quick thinking that Meg has is something that she was born with and the attributes that make her a great scammer, getting to know people, being incredibly patient and observant, being very, very good at reading people. Those are all characteristics that Meg is depicted as having even at the very beginning of her story before anything bad really happens to her. So I would say that Meg's suffering is more of the catalyst for her chosen career rather than what makes her stronger. Or let's put it this way, if Meg had never become homeless, if she had never suffered, then she would still have the same skills. She might have developed them in some other capacity and have developed a roughly similar personality. I don't know, she might have gone into sales or something, but she would not have become a scammer. And she only succeeds at being a scammer because of talents she already has. Those talents don't arise out of her struggles with poverty or her scamming. So overall, I would say Meg is both a strong character and a character whose development is not intrinsically tied to her suffering. Yes, for the purposes of the story, she does need to suffer, but her suffering is not intrinsically tied to her strength of character. So A plus job at writing a strong female character. I really like Meg and she's one of my favorite characters I've read about so far this year. Which, given that it's still early in the year and I haven't read that many books this year, it's kind of like calling a January release your favorite movie of the year, but you get my point. I think one of the reasons I really like Meg is because she reminds me of those epic action heroes who always have a plan and are always level-headed and have amazing instincts. I'm thinking in particular of Ocean's Eleven or the old Mission Impossible TV series, which I realize that probably nobody has seen these days, but that's fine. It's not a role that I have seen given to a lot of women in fiction, and that makes me sad, honestly, because I'm a sucker for that archetype. I really enjoy reading about it, no matter how unrealistic it gets. 
So if you enjoy that type of hero as well, I think this book is going to be a hit with you, particularly because Meg is truly the highlight of the book. Which is not to say that I don't like Kat, because I do. And I think that Kat is probably the more well-developed character, if only because, by necessity, Meg doesn't really have friends and family that we can use to give us more of a look into who she is as a person. Basically, everyone that Meg interacts with, she interacts with for the purposes of scamming them. But Kat does have actual friends and family. Kat has an overbearing mother and a husband who's a recovering gambling addict, and she's got this job churning out online content, and all of that makes her a very well-rounded character. Kat is absolutely strong. She's similar to Meg in a lot of ways. She's intelligent, she's resourceful, she's patient. And as you've probably picked up on by now, Kat's an incredibly grounded character. She's the kind of person you'd meet on the street. Meg is kind of the opposite. Even when you're in her point of view, even when you know what she's thinking and feeling, Meg is just an absolute legend. She's larger than life, and even when she's doing the most ordinary things, you can sense that there's something much larger going on. Even when she's down, like when she's homeless, you know that it's only a matter of time before she gets back up on her feet. In contrast, Kat's life is a lot more ordinary. When she's wondering how she's going to pay the bills or when she's doing daily activities, there's not a larger picture that's being put together. There's real uncertainty, real stress, real problems that most people have faced. And so when it comes to Kat's suffering, the outcome is also a lot more grounded. Meg goes from being homeless to rich con artist and Kat goes from aspiring journalist fresh out of a prestigious school to barely getting by writing those articles you get when you're searching for something online like 10 fun holiday ideas or 10 easiest ways to peel garlic. Kat is a strong woman before her trauma happens to her. And the trauma doesn't just continue to haunt her emotionally, it derails her entire life. And while Kat does eventually get her life back on track, it's not because her trauma has made her stronger. Instead, she's strong in spite of her trauma. Again, I love the character development. I really enjoyed reading about both of these women. I will say that I didn't find the book particularly surprising because I'm a little jaded, as I've mentioned before, when it comes to true crime or anything adjacent to that. And also, just given the kind of character Meg is, I had thought from the beginning that there was only one real outcome that was possible. However, for me, getting to read about Meg and Kat was a treat. The storytelling was very enjoyable, and both of those things definitely helped to make up for finding the storyline to be a tiny bit predictable. It all really comes down to what you're looking for. Overall, I would rate The Lies I Tell as a staying up until 2am book because it's well crafted and builds up its tension well even if the payoff was a little less dramatic slash surprising than what I was hoping for. But that might just come down to the genre which is domestic thrillers rather than this specific book. 
So we've established that the two female protagonists in The Lies I Tell definitely experienced suffering and also that the trauma they experienced was the catalyst for moving the plot forward. However, from a character development standpoint, I would argue that their suffering was not what made them strong, but rather that Meg and Kat were already strong people and thus were able to survive less than ideal circumstances. Now, let's move on to the next book I want to talk about this week, which is The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. My tagline for this book would be Feminist Grapes of Wrath with Italian Food. This book is both exactly what I thought it would be and also not at all what I thought this book would be. My expectations for the beginning of this book were that it would start with the main character being on a farm, you know, the impending tragedy of Dust Bowl about to strike, etc, etc. Instead, the beginning was completely different. It hooked me in right away by being very character-driven, very emotional, the kind of things that tend to pull me in. And honestly, I think it was a very wise choice. If you can pull a reader in emotionally and you can get them to root for your main character, then most of your work as an author is already done. When all of the emotional turmoil starts happening, you don't need to overplay your hand and try to invoke emotions because your reader already wants the best for the protagonist and any setback on their narrative journey automatically becomes amplified in its emotional impact on the reader. Speaking of the beginning of this book, it actually felt really familiar to me and it wasn't until I finished the book that I realized why. The beginning of this book really reminds me of The Blue Castle by Ellen Montgomery, which is a book I absolutely recommend. Ellen Montgomery has always been one of my favorite authors because she has such an engaging narrative style and just this real talent for creating compelling characters. Also, The Blue Castle is out of copyright, so you can actually read it for free on Project Gutenberg. I'll be putting a link to it in the description. And I really love this book because it's so heartfelt and so sweet. It's just a very feel-good story, particularly for people who are feeling depressed with where they are in life or who are just stuck in an unpleasant situation. And unlike Anne of Green Gables, which is probably the book you think of when I mention Ellen Montgomery, The Blue Castle was written for an adult audience, so it is more mature in its themes than something like Anne of Green Gables, which was written for children. Anyway, back to The Four Winds. The Four Winds starts out as very reminiscent of the Blue Castle, but obviously it takes a very different direction with the main character, Elsa, ending up as a farm wife and dealing with the struggles of the Dust Bowl, which occurred in the 1930s. Essentially, the Dust Bowl occurred because the Midwest, which is still famous for its agriculture, became unable to support the farmers who lived there because the topsoil was blown
blown away and gave rise to dust storms. Crucially, there wasn't enough rain and you can't grow crops if it doesn't rain. So a lot of farmers ended up moving to California in order to try to find work because the state of California was trying to attract domestic U.S. workers to replace the Mexican immigrants who had traditionally been doing most of the agriculture. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough work for the droves of farmers who traveled to California and these farmers ended up living in pretty dire conditions until World War II created a bunch of new jobs. Essentially, the whole Dust Bowl situation was a microcosm of a story that was happening all over the U.S. during the Great Depression. If you read Grapes of Wrath, in high school like I did, then it's a pretty familiar story. And honestly, I was a little disappointed that the four winds didn't really go beyond where Grapes of Wrath ended, since the Grapes of Wrath was written in the midst of the Great Depression and the four winds was written much more recently. We now have the benefit of, you know, hindsight. And I thought it would be natural to show how most of those farmers managed to get out of that poverty and improve their lives, but that's not the direction the story wanted to go, and I recognize that it's because of the themes that this book wanted to address, so I respect that decision, even if it's not what I would have done. So let's talk a little bit about the main character, Elsa. Elsa is obviously a strong woman. I don't just mean that metaphorically, I mean that this woman is capable of intense manual labor that I could not handle if my life depended on it. Let's be real, I get achy finger joints just typing on a keyboard all day. But Elsa is also a metaphorically strong woman. She's incredibly resourceful and she faces a lot of stress that most people would absolutely break down under, including trying to feed her family, trying to decide whether her family should stay in the Midwest or go to California, trying to find work for herself to feed her family, etc. She's always trying, she's always persevering, and even when times get really tough, she never gives up. That's Elsa's defining characteristic, in my opinion. No matter what, she just keeps going. Going back to our discussion about strong women and suffering, Elsa's inner strength is not something that's immediately apparent at the beginning of the book, but it's absolutely there. I would argue that her character development during which she becomes a stronger person is not at all tied to the struggles she goes through. Instead, I think it's her in-laws, the Martinellis, and particularly her mother-in-law, who make her stronger by their example. And when things get tough, it's her in-laws who help her get through it, just like she also helps them. But most notably, her in-laws help her develop her internal strength before any of the real struggles begin, when everything is still prosperous and times are good. And I think that's a really good, very realistic way of showing how being surrounded by loving and supportive people can make you a stronger person. In contrast, Elsa's abusive 
with family at the beginning of the book puts her through a lot of emotional turmoil, but none of that makes her stronger. It's only when she finally experiences what it's like to live in a healthy family dynamic that she becomes the strong person she always had the potential to be. And she continues to be that person throughout the rest of the book, even when she would be entirely justified in just giving up. And I think that's a really touching portrayal of found family and also a great way of developing a strong female character. Speaking of family dynamics, I found the dynamic between Elsa, her daughter Loretta, and Elsa's husband to be fascinating. It was just really well done and it's not something that I've personally seen a lot of in fiction. Loretta is around 12 years old, she's very close to her dad, and she's openly resentful of her mother. Why? Well, because her mother is always super practical, she's always thinking about finances and the work around the house and the farm that needs to be done. On the other hand, Loretta's dad is always full of dreams and fantasies, telling Loretta about what life could be like in Hollywood while he lets Elsa do most of the hard work involved in actually keeping a roof over their heads and food on the table. Now, speaking from personal experience, when you're a child, you're very much drawn to the parent who's a dreamer, the parent who promises to take you away from your boring everyday life and take you somewhere magical. Because when you're a child, you don't realize just how much work is involved in being an adult. You don't realize that you can't live off of dreams. And especially when you're a girl idolizing your dad, it's hard for you to realize just how much of that comes down to internalized misogyny. You can see that very clearly with Loretta. She really, really wants her mom to be more like her dad without realizing that it wouldn't be possible for her dad to have those kinds of dreams without having her mom do a lot of silent, unnoticed emotional and physical labor. And it's really touching to see Loretta throughout the story come to appreciate her mother and all of her mother's sacrifices. But at the same time, it's hard heartbreaking to see just how much Elsa's abusive family stunted her emotional growth to the point that even having a loving family of her own couldn't really help her vocalize her emotions and actually build connections to her own husband and child. Overall, I do like this book a lot. Getting to see Elsa escape her abusive family and build a home and a family of her own, it was a very emotional journey. This story packs a lot of emotional punches, particularly when the poverty gets very bad, and it still manages to keep you reading because you just want the best for Elsa and her family. Well, her family, except for her husband. He is such a loser. If I'm allowed to have a tiny moment of criticism, I would like to say that this book does struggle a bit with trying to decide if it wants to be a story about the Martinelli family or if it wants to be a story about a typical Dust Bowl family escaping to California. And I do think that issue that I'm seeing derives from its lineage as a kind of 
homage to the Grapes of Wrath. Here I am trudging up my high school memories, but I would say that the Grapes of Wrath is very much an allegorical story. It's not particularly about the specific family, although the family is fleshed out, but still, at its core, the Grapes of Wrath is very much a story that is pushing this idea that there are a lot of problems, you know, going on in California with these poor workers who are escaping the Dust Bowl and we need to do something about it. It is a story with a message and a purpose. It's basically propaganda and I don't mean that in a negative way. Propaganda can just mean that it's something that's written, you know, for the sake of pushing a message and that message can be good or it can be bad. Even something like Casablanca is propaganda. It's good propaganda because it's anti-Nazi propaganda created during World War II, but nevertheless, it is still propaganda as is the Grapes of Wrath. But going back to The Four Winds, I do think it struggles a little bit with trying to decide what form exactly its homage to The Grapes of Wrath is taking. But at the end of the day, the characters are always the most important part of any book to me. And I loved reading about Elsa, ergo, I loved The Four Winds. I would also like to rate this as a staying up until 2am book, which came as a surprise to me, if I'm being honest. When I read the premise, I did not think that it would be a staying up until 2am kind of book. I thought it would be a bit of a slog, if only because I thought it would be really depressing, which it was, but the character-focused opening of the story immediately drew me in. It made me want to root for Elsa and her happiness and that desire to see her happy pulled me through the rest of the story. Even when things got depressing, the tension between the hope of things getting better and the reality of the situation getting worse played off of each other to create a surprisingly page-turning read. So to recap, in The Four Winds, Elsa's initial suffering at the hands of her family did not make her stronger. And in fact, she didn't truly become strong until she ended up in a supportive environment. The subsequent suffering she endured tested the limits of the strength she had already developed. And the narrative did not ever imply that this suffering made her stronger. Overall, great character development, and it's an excellent example of a strong woman raising a new generation of strong women. And speaking of strong women raising strong women, let's talk about Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ung. I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Apologies if I'm not. Now, Little Fires Everywhere has been on my to-read list forever, and I've always been super curious about it, particularly since this is a very popular book, but the blurb isn't particularly descriptive, which I do understand having read the book. It's not a book that I would find particularly easy to describe either. I think that this book has also been made into a TV show, which I have not seen. Whenever there's a book, I tend to want to read that first, and I'm not entirely sure why, since I usually end up liking the book better. But 
Anyway, I finally got around to reading Little Fires Everywhere, and it was completely different than what I was expecting, but in a good way. I started reading this book, and I had to double check what year it was written, because for some reason, it read very 19th century. And there's a few things about this style that make it seem reminiscent of 19th century books, but in particular, one of the biggest markers of that style for me is the omniscient point of view. That's an unusual craft choice. As you'll know, if you've ever picked up any book on writing ever, it's not a craft choice that most books recommend, and that's because it's really, really hard to pull off. But in this case, it works really well because the whole point of the book is that everyone has reasons, often sympathetic or at least understandable reasons, for the choices that they make. But at the same time, those choices can have unintended consequences. As far as the premise for the book, it's about a single mother, Mia, and her daughter, Pearl, who moved to this planned, very idealistic community called Shaker Heights, where they rent a house from a rich family called the Richardsons. The book is mainly about Pearl and Mia interacting with the Richardson family and the fallout from the connections that mainly Pearl, but also Mia, form. I'm honestly hesitant to call any of the characters really a main character, but I'd say that the focal point of the book is definitely Pearl and Mia, so they're what I would call the main characters. And Mia is the character that I want to focus on in particular when we talk about this week's topic, which is strong women and suffering. Mia is an interesting character, if only because we get so little information about her at the beginning of the book. She's an artist who travels from place to place with her daughter, creating a project and then moving on to the next city. This is obviously not a lifestyle that you just wake up and choose one day, particularly when you're a single mom. Obviously, there's a lot more to Mia than what we see at first, but even knowing only what we know about this character at the beginning of the book tells us that she's strong, she's resilient, she's incredibly resourceful. Obviously, living this way causes a lot of financial problems, but Mia spends a lot of time and effort to make sure that Pearl doesn't have to worry or feel like she has to give up her schooling in order to pitch in, which I think really shows just how good of a mom Mia is. Now, does Mia suffer? I would say yes. She puts up with a lot to make sure that Pearl has the best childhood possible under the circumstances. And towards the end of the book, we learn that Mia deals with a lot of internal struggles, especially guilt. I mean, feeling like you stole someone's kid, but actually the kid is your biological kid, that's a lot for a teenager to deal with. And even more so, like Elsa, Mia wasn't raised in what you would call an ideal family environment. That absolutely helped to shape her personality, obviously, but I would say that it's her brother's love and support that give her the strength she needs to pursue her passions. Now, as far as determining whether her struggles in adulthood give her strength or test her strength, I'd say that it's possible to argue both ways. I think that Mia is the only character in the book who remains kind of mysterious, which is quite a feat given that, despite being the only character who receives extensive backstory, I'm still not entirely sure I understand all of the motivations that are driving her. Personally, I'm leaning kind of towards both. 
Mia is the kind of person who thrives under pressure, which basically makes her the opposite of me, and it's an amazing life skill. You can see that, for example, in her art. Some of her best art is inspired by the Richardsons, who I would argue calls her the most suffering aside from her parents. All in all, I have to admit that out of the three protagonists we've discussed this week, Mia, Elsa, and Meg slash Kat, Mia is the one who resonates the least with me. I sympathize with her struggles, but overall, I think I'm just too pragmatic of a person to understand the choices she makes. She basically gives up everything to keep Pearl. She drops out of college and gives up a career just to raise a child that she knew from the beginning she wasn't intended to keep. It might be fair to call me a little selfish, but I tend to prioritize my own goals over pretty much everything else, particularly when it comes to major life choices. And I think that's partially because I've seen way too many women given to society's expectations of young marriage and motherhood, and partially because I'm really not ready to give up my dreams. When it comes down to my feelings versus what I've decided is right for me, I'm making the practical choice every time. But I want to make it clear that I did love the character of Mia, and I did love Little Fires Everywhere. Aside from the style, I also loved the message of the book, which is that everyone has a unique perspective that they use to rationalize their decisions. There was a lot of effort put into fleshing out even the minor characters, and it made for such a rich reading experience. That's one of the beauties of 19th century literature that I think we're definitely missing today, which is getting a perspective that is not the protagonist's. In books, in most books today, we only have one or two point of views, excluding works of epic fantasy like Game of Thrones. But even in books with only one or two point of views, you can still understand the perspective of a minor character without having it spelled out for you, but you're very rarely going to understand them as well as you can with an omniscient point of view. Pearl is definitely my favorite character, and I think that's because I related heavily to her experiences going to a wealthy school where you feel like you don't really belong, as well as what it's like to hang out with those kinds of kids and go to those kinds of kids' houses. It's a weird experience, and the dynamic between Pearl and, and Lexi Richardson in particular really hit home for me as that kind of thing where the rich kid is just being offhandedly generous and you want to accept their generosity, but at the same time, you feel weird about doing that. Lexi's like, here, have my clothes. And Pearl's like, wow, thanks, I guess. My least favorite character is absolutely Mrs. Richardson. She's sympathetic up to a point, but I feel like she crossed a lot of lines that make her pretty much irredeemable in my eyes, even if I know why she did what she did. Also, I'm going to say it, but some of those lines felt like they were crossed in service to the plot, even if the decision ultimately made sense for her character. Like, that scene where she's in the abortion clinic and just happens to take a look at the computer and Pearl's name is there. Holy plot contrivance, Batman. But overall, her character really embodies the kind of thoughtless privilege that dresses itself up as being super considerate and caring. Having experienced that kind of person in real life many times, I don't really enjoy having to experience it again, even in fiction. Also, again, Mrs. 
Louise Richardson gives up a lot of privilege and potential that could have given her a fulfilling career, but what does she give it up for, settling down and having kids super young? Maybe it's just me, but that kind of arc just makes me sad, especially when it's clear that it doesn't really make her happy and or fulfilled. Speaking of sad, I am a little sad that the book ended where it did. It felt kind of abrupt, but also I am old enough by now to know that a sequel would probably not be the fulfillment of my fantasies or even what I'm really expecting to read. So thank you, maturity, and also thank you to all of my favorite authors who don't want to write the happy endings my favorite characters deserve because it's too predictable or whatever excuse they're coming up with this week. Overall, I am going to rate this a not staying up until 2am book, mostly because it is a very dense reading experience given the omniscient point of view and the sheer number of characters. Also, structurally, this book is mostly concerned with slice of life type events, which I do enjoy, but also that type of structure makes it easier to put down the book and take a break. I will say that towards the end, when all of the plot threads start tying together, the mounting tension does want to make you keep reading, which is honestly very similar to my experiences reading 19th century books like Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen or Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Alright, so now we've examined some strong women in literature and how their suffering impacted their character development. I'd like to wrap this up by giving some of my thoughts on the suffering of women and how in particular it ties into the archetype of the strong female protagonist. One in particular I'd like to point out and comment on is the fact that every single time a female protagonist is advertised as being a strong woman, I just know for a fact that she's going to experience suffering of some kind. I've mentioned before that I hate the widespread idea that suffering makes you stronger. Well, I'm going to take it a step further and say that I hate that in order to show a female character is strong, you must show her suffering. Note that I didn't say adversity. I know as a writer that adversity and conflict drive the plot. It is very hard to have a compelling story without some kind of adversity or conflict. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about suffering, as in trauma, as in violence, as in terrible things happening to these female characters. In order to show that a male protagonist is strong, you show him cutting down a tree or killing a monster. There is no question that he's got emotional strength. It's never a concern of the writer to have to show it. In fact, if a male character does not have emotional strength, if he is a coward and a total scumbag and just a loser, the author needs to go out of their way to show that explicitly. Because the default, the default position is to assume that he's some kind of noble hero. But women in literature, a woman in literature, particularly a protagonist, her baseline is that she's weak and you must put her through terrible things to show that she is not. You need to prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. 
You need to go, well, if she could survive this, she must be strong. Intrinsically, suffering and strength of character are tied together for women in literature, even if strength of character is not derived from suffering. Because for women, moral strength apparently cannot exist without suffering. And can I just take a moment to point out how ridiculous that is? I also want to add a quick caveat here, which is that I also, as a writer, want to be held accountable to my own standard as well. I want to write strong women who don't necessarily need to suffer for the audience to see that they're strong women. If you notice that all of my strong female protagonists suffer, then please point it out to me and I will definitely try to avoid that in the future because it frustrates me to know end and I know that there must be readers out there who feel the same way. Alright, now before I end this week's episode, I'd like to take a moment to do a bit of a writing craft discussion. I didn't get to do one last week and in general moving forward, I do want to try to have at least one writing craft discussion every episode because as I like to point out all the time, I am a writer and that is how I tend to approach books and it's interesting for me to kind of apply that lens to whatever it is that I'm reading. And hopefully if you're listening to this, you find that interesting interesting as well. Before I proceed, I do want to say I know I gave a spoiler warning at the beginning of the episode, but I'm about to give a major, major spoiler for the ending of The Four Winds. If this is a book that you are intending to read, you may want to stop listening right here. Um, so yeah, extra strength spoiler warning for what I am about to discuss. So adding on to this idea of suffering, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the ending of The Four Winds. The end of The Four Winds. The ending is that Elsa dies. There you go. Now you see, if you've not read The Four Winds, you see why I had to give an extra strength spoiler warning, because that is what you would call a major spoiler. Now, it's probably not a secret that I love happy endings. And what can I say? I read romance. I write romance. I adore cozy, happy stories where everyone gets what they deserve. It's also why I love mysteries. Most mysteries have somewhat happy endings, usually in the form of, you know, justice or whatever. However, I do want to say that I don't dislike sad endings, especially if I feel they're appropriate for the story that's been told to me. I mean, I'm never going to sit here and complain about the way A Tale of Two Cities ends. It wouldn't really be a gut punch if Carton survived, right? Oh, I guess theoretically that was a spoiler too. Uh, spoiler for The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which you probably either read in school, and if you didn't read it in school, then you're probably not interested in reading it anyway. So, um, there we go. But back to my discussion, some stories have to end sadly, and that's okay. Honestly, some stories would be better if they ended sadly. I know, I know no one is going to know what I'm talking about, but there is a book called Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. It's basically a book about a Scottish outlaw named Rob Roy, and that's all you really need to know about it. But anyway, that book was absolutely set up to have a sad ending. That was Sir Walter Scott's original intention when he wrote the book. But then it got changed at the very last minute, and it shows. 
lose because do you know how he managed to change it to be a happy ending? He killed off like a dozen people in one page just so that the romantic interests could get back together. It's ridiculous. It would have been so much more impactful if he just left it as a sad ending. And also, he retcons basically everything that came before it, which just, it spoils the entire story when you reread it. And also, it just makes the whole thing not make sense. So, not only does it ruin the emotional impact, it ruins the entire book. So like I said, although I love happy endings, I can appreciate a good sad ending and I can recognize as a reader when that sad ending is supposed to exist. So why do I not like the way The Four Winds ends? I actually had to think about it for a bit because I didn't want my answer to just be that I didn't want a sad ending or that I just wanted Elsa to survive. Both things are true, but that's not fundamentally why I dislike the ending. Here is my answer that I came to after a bit of thinking. Elsa's death has a literary inevitability that I don't like. Literary inevitability is kind of a mouthful. It's a strange way to put it, I know. So let me explain. I keep bringing this back to high school, but I bring it back to high school because a lot of people in high school, particularly if you are in the United States and you took AP literature like I did, then you did probably end up reading a lot of great literature. That's why I keep bringing up high school. But if you took AP literature in the United States in high school, then you've probably read a few Shakespeare plays. And the plays you read were probably tragedies, like I read. I read Macbeth and I read Hamlet, and I read Othello. All Shakespeare plays, all great tragedies. Now, almost every tragic Shakespeare play, at least as far as I've read, ends with almost everybody dying. Like Hamlet, for example. A lot of Shakespeare's plays end with the survivors dragging the bodies off the stage. And in that tradition, a lot of literature ends that way as well, with the protagonist dying. Take another book that I read in AP Literature, Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Did anyone else read that book? Honestly, by the end, that book just became trauma porn. Like, I could not take it seriously. Okay, the child... Oh, spoilers for Jude the Obscure, but it's honestly not a book I can recommend in good faith for entertainment purposes, so... Okay, the child kills his siblings and hangs himself? The wife divorces Jude and goes back to the husband she hated? Jude dies in dire poverty? Alright, I'm just over here trying not to laugh from the utter absurdity of all of these things piled up on each other. Now, here's why these kinds of endings bother me. Not to critique Shakespeare, but I'm about to critique Shakespeare. These kinds of endings bother me because they're marketed as tragedy. But to me, death isn't particularly tragic if you're the person who's dying. If Hamlet dies, which he does, that is sad for the people around him. But if everybody else around him also dies, then that just neatly solved the mess Hamlet created and everybody gets to, you know, rest in peace. Was that a little dark? I'm sorry. And in literature, generally speaking, you're in the protagonist's point of view. If you're reading Hamlet, then you're in Hamlet's point of view. 
So for me, the protagonist dying isn't a particularly tragic ending. It's more so the ultimate escape. For me, tragedy is knowing that you've made mistakes, knowing that things could get harder, and having to live with the consequences anyway. If you're dead, then that's it. Regardless of whether you think that there's anything beyond this life, once you're dead, you're done with life on Earth. Well, I guess if you believe in ghosts, it's a little, it's a little different. But uh, for most people, once you're dead, you're done with life on Earth. I don't, I don't think everyone comes back as a ghost. Is there anyone out there who believes that everyone comes back as a ghost once they're dead? Please let me know. Anyway, if you're already living in a tragedy, death is not the ultimate tragedy. It's a cop out. The tragedy of Hamlet is not Hamlet's death. The tragedy of Hamlet is that Hamlet is a mentally ill man who is messing up his entire life. That is the tragedy. Now, going back to the four winds, let's take Elsa's story. Elsa's life is going steadily downhill basically the entire book. She manages to finally stand up for herself at the end of the book, and what happens? She dies without any prospect of her family's life getting better. Now, you may be thinking, well, Elsa has kids. Her death is sad for them since the kids don't die. And it's true, but the book not only doesn't focus on the impact that Elsa's death has on her kids, which would be tragic, but also the kids have Jack and their grandparents to look after them. If your point is to paint Elsa as a tragic hero, I'm just saying having her die is just a tiresomely predictable way to end her character arc. And Elsa dying is also not true to what I think the book is trying to say thematically. The point of the book, at least to me, is, as I said at the beginning of my discussion of The Four Winds, it's to be the feminist version of Grapes of Wrath. The point of The Four Winds is that behind the men who suffered, there were women who didn't even have the option to vocalize their suffering because it was their job to keep things running even when the men had given up. Ironically, I almost think The Grapes of Wrath shows this better with its ending. Spoilers for The Grapes of Wrath. Again, not a book I really recommend for entertainment purposes, but uh, everyone has different reading tastes. At the end of The Grapes of Wrath, the daughter of the family gives birth to a stillborn baby, right? And, oh, this is going to sound weird if uh, you haven't read The Grapes of Wrath. But essentially, essentially, the end of the book is the daughter giving her milk to a man who needs it, who's dying of hunger and thirst. And so I think maybe that ending is better at showing the themes that I think this book is trying to illustrate because it shows that this woman who just went through incredible loss and suffering silently gives this dying man what she can. And she's not even thinking of her loss in that moment because she just has to keep going. But basically, back to the four winds, women didn't have any choice but to keep going no matter what. And that, I think, is the crux of the difference between how in a patriarchal society, men suffer and women suffer. I'm not trying to make this a gendered thing, but more how gendered roles in a patriarchy generally work. Men suffer, obviously, but their suffering is very much a reflection of how men are allowed by society, by patriarchal society, 
societies to be individuals, to have individual needs and wants and desires. That's why Loreda, Elsa's daughter, is close to her father, because that's what she admires about him. But women, women are a different story. In a patriarchal social structure, women are always working for others, living for others, keeping things running smoothly for others. A woman's true suffering is that her job is never over. Even in modern society where many women have entered the workforce, it's still true that in many households, working women are still shouldering the large part of the burden of keeping the household running. A lot of working women still do a disproportionate amount of, ha- of household chores. And I did see a study about it, which I will try to link in the description if I can. That's why Elsa's husband has the option of leaving his family and Elsa doesn't. It's why Elsa has to keep going, because that's the burden society has placed on her. She's only important because of what she does or can do for her family. Within that context, if the point of the book is to truly drive that awareness of women suffering home, Elsa can't die. Dying, again within that context, is a selfish act that gives Elsa the peace that society continually denies her. It means leaving her children. It means giving up on finally achieving some kind of financial stability. It means escape. And none of those things, I think, at least as far as my reading abilities go, are the message or themes of the book. If I were to rewrite the ending, I would have Elsa living. I would have her living to face another day, living to realize that no matter what happens, no matter how hopeless she becomes, she's bound by her own sense of duty to keep living, that there is no escape from the suffering that patriarchal societies impose on women. So yeah, basically, basically the point of this week's writing craft discussion is that I do not like the way The Four Winds ends, and that is why, because it is marketed as tragedy, but I fundamentally I do not agree with the idea that a protagonist dying is a tragic ending, and in particular, within the context of the Four Winds, I especially don't think that it's saying what it thinks it's saying. Alright, that concludes this week's episode on strong women suffering in literature. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club, and I'll see you all next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week, and I wish you all happy book travels. (laughs) 